So for the last five weeks, we've been walking through our mission and core values. We are a church seeking to share together in the life of Christ by loving God and loving our neighbors. And we are a people who are gospel-centered, centered on the story of Jesus, his life, death, burial, and resurrection, his ascension, and the reality that he is coming back again. We care deeply about cultivating both a life with God and deeply formed community with one another. In other words, we wrestled with why we exist and who we are. And all the while, as we worked through these things, I was continually drawn to an ideal, to these imagine-if statements, to things we've tasted but have yet to fully realize. And you might have even caught some of it over the last number of weeks, those times where I challenged our imaginations. And the reality is our imaginations need challenging. Because in the words of C.S. Lewis, more often than not, we are far too easily pleased. And so I challenged us to imagine what it would look like if we were a place where the broken were welcomed and made whole, spiritually, emotionally, physically, and even economically. What would that look like? I asked us to imagine Redeemer Fellowship as a place where the joy of the Lord marked us as a people. A place where the experience of the goodness of God and the joy of his salvation was a regular occurrence among us. I asked us to dream about being conduits of God's kindness, that same kindness that leads the broken to repentance. And I asked us to envision us as a community of faith who truly sought to put away all sexual immorality and hateful speech and to put on the kindness, humility, patience, and love of King Jesus. And all of that, it kept driving me to this vision of what we could be if we continued entrusting ourselves to the promises of Christ. And the text that kept on coming to mind, which I quoted throughout the series, is where we see that beautiful ideal of a place where bruised reeds and smoldering wicks are not broken and quenched, but rather they are mended and fanned into flames. What I'm holding out for us is truly a picture of the realized kingdom of heaven. And it will never be fully experienced on this side of glory, but I still can't help but want so badly for this church to continue living up to its name, Redeemer Fellowship, a place where the bruised, battered, and broken come to find rest peace and salvation, that God's kingdom would come on earth, earth right here in Tom's River as it is in heaven. And who knows, maybe God is crystallizing some things together for us after these last three years. And my prayer is that we would continue by faith to give him the time and space to have his, his way with us to do only what he can do. That's my hope. And so if you have your Bibles... Turn with me to Matthew chapter 12. And as always, we need to zoom out and look at the context if we want to more fully understand what's going on in our passage. So in all reality, this is going to be a sermon that's on Matthew 11 verses 25 through 12, 21. So I don't know why I didn't just say that from the beginning, but that's what we're going to do. And so to, to, to back up a little bit, 
before we jump into verse, verses 1 through 8 in chapter 12, I want to read what's going on in chapter 11, starting in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious, gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me because I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. So Jesus is directly addressing his father. And what he thanks him for in those first two verses, verses 25 through 26, is for revealing these things and these things are the things of the kingdom. And he thanks him for revealing them, not to the sort of people you'd expect royal secrets to be revealed, those who are wise and understanding, but rather they're revealed to little children, to those who are simple, the weak ones of the world. And then he starts talking to those weak ones, and what he says to them is just beautiful. He reveals to them the authority that's been entrusted to him by the Father. But that's not what's truly remarkable. What's remarkable is that this man, Jesus, who has been entrusted with this authority, he offers these weak ones, these little children, rest from the obvious labor that those at the bottom of the social ladder would have been enduring. Jesus doesn't use his authority to exploit the broken, the poor, and the weak, as so many do when they come into a little bit of power. But rather, he uses it to come alongside them and to identify with them and to offer them rest. To offer them rest. And that sets the stage for what we're going to see unfold in Matthew chapter 12, verses 1 through 21. And it sets the stage for the sort of people I believe God is calling us to be here at Redeemer Fellowship. Let me explain what I mean. Matthew presents two sorts of people in the passages that follow. First, the seemingly wise and understanding. And they're played by the Pharisees, as we'll see in a few minutes. And second, he, he uses the little children, and that group of people are played by both the disciples and this man with a withered hand. And so let's see how it plays out. Verses 1 through 8 of chapter 12, it says this. At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry, and they began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. He said to them, have you not heard what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and ate the bread of the presence, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priests. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you, something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, 
you would not have condemned the guiltless because the son of man, well, he's Lord of the Sabbath. Now, first thing to note, all of these events, they take place when? On the Sabbath. And that's important because there were laws about the Sabbath. And the question that we need to wrestle with was whether or not Jesus was breaking those laws. Do they have an argument here? Right? We have to be honest with the text. We have to ask those questions. Do the Pharisees have a leg to stand on? Well, Jesus provides us with three arguments as to why they do not. The first one is, my people are hungry, just as David and his people were hungry. And even though there are laws, people matter more. You track with that? Even though there are these ceremonial laws that that the people of God are supposed to abide by, people always matter more. A second argument, those who served in the temple, well, guess what? They were required to work on the Sabbath. Guys, I don't know if you know this, but Sunday, it's a work day for me. It's a work day. And so if we envision Sunday as a Sabbath, which many of us do, and, and, and there's some theological reality to that, and we're not going to get into that today, but I work. And I'm fine with that. But the question is, am I breaking Sabbath? No. No, just like the priests who were working in the temple on the Sabbath, they weren't breaking Sabbath because they were offering sacrifices for the people, and that job outweighed the law against working on the Sabbath. Again, people matter more. People matter more. And guess what else? Something greater than the temple is here. There's another point that Jesus just kind of slips in there. The third argument he gives, and finally, and I believe this really is the focal point of what Jesus is driving at. He says, God desires mercy, not sacrifice. Therefore, to condemn people for what might be a slight violation, and I stress might, because it doesn't seem like it was a violation at all, is to major in the minors and to put the traditions and interpretations of men over the welfare of people. Again, people matter more. One commentator actually observed, and I thought this was really interesting, that the Pharisees seemed to be breaking the Sabbath themselves by investigating and spying on Jesus and plotting evil against him on what's supposed to be a day of rest and worship. And so there's just a little bit of irony there to wrestle with. What's the point? I think it's simple. People matter more. And we're going to stress that over the course of our time this morning. People matter more than our traditions and interpretations. The Sabbath regulations that were placed on the shoulders of God's people were a burden and a yoke that God never intended for them to bear. And sadly, that instinct, oh, it's still very much alive in the people of God very much alive. New Testament scholar Craig Keener, he says it like this, and I have a slide for it. He says, some culturally conservative churches today still interpret the Bible the way the Pharisees in this passage do. And these are some hard words, so I want us to breathe and receive these words and wrestle with them. Some culturally conservative churches today still interpret the Bible the way the Pharisees in this passage do. 
building an even tighter fence around the strictest of interpretations of the law to keep from breaking it. For example, I have known firsthand of some that misconstrue scripture to condemn all divorced people or women who wear slacks to church, and and you can add other clothing here if that helps you understand the point Keener is making, music more relevant to our youth or anything else that violates their tradition. Conservatives can dishonor God's word through abuse and neglect, just as liberals can through neglect and rejection. Now, some of you might be able to even add to what Keener says. Pain you've experienced at the hands of religious people. And all I can say to you is that I am sorry. And I pray you find rest here. But the point that Keener is making is that traditions are not law. Traditions are not law. And our specific interpretations of particular and difficult passages, they should be held with humility, allowing love, mercy, and compassion to be the overriding interpretive lens through which we operate. If we don't, we'll nitpick everybody's walk with Jesus. And this will become a place where bruised reeds are crushed and smoldering wicks are snuffed out completely. People have to matter more. People have to matter more. Now, that doesn't mean, and please do not hear what I'm not saying, as I said last week, that we wink at sin like it doesn't exist. That's not the point I'm making. That's not the point that Matthew's gospel is making. Unchecked and besetting sin still wreaks havoc on a community. Still wreaks havoc on a community. Let's keep going. It's still the Sabbath, and Jesus is now upping the ante. The text says, he went on from there and entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? So that they might accuse him. He said to them, which one of you who has a sheep... All of you, who of you has sheep? You guys? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. They asked Jesus if it's lawful to heal on the Sabbath. Now, the nature of the Pharisees' question and the reason so that they might accuse him, they show us that these wise and understanding men, remember we talked about them in the previous passage, they're the very sort to whom the secrets of the kingdom are hidden. They just don't get it. And part of the reason why they don't get it is because if doing good is lawful on the Sabbath and people are free to determine what that good is, then what ends up happening in this sort of economy is that their power starts to weaken. We see this throughout Matthew's gospel. Religious leaders, people in authority, Jesus rolls up on the scene and they're fearful that they're going to lose their power. We saw it with Herod in the beginning 
when, when all of a sudden he hears that there's a king of Israel being born in his city, and he's like, whoa, 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 I'm king of Israel. We got to kill this baby. And this happens throughout the scriptures. We see it everywhere. The same story shows up in Exodus, right? When the people of Israel were multiplying so much so that the king of Egypt looked out and he's like, we got to do something about this because if we don't, if someone comes against us, the Israelites are going to join with them and they'll take away our power. That's always what people in, in these positions are really wrestling with. And that seems to be what they're wrestling with. Now, I'm interpreting here. That's not super clear in the text, but we can infer that, that they are wrestling with this idea that if they are free to make their own decisions about how to function on a Sabbath, they're not going to need the religious leader's input on every single minutia detail of their lives. And that means some people might be out of a job. Now, a couple things. It was common in the culture that if an individual's animal, or like a sheep, which was most likely a source of their income, was in trouble, and it happened to be on a Sabbath, then they were permitted to help the animal. To which Jesus says, of how much more value is a man than a sheep. People matter more, is basically what Jesus is saying. And nobody would disagree with that statement, which is why it was also common in that culture that if a person was in danger then somebody was able to help them, even if it were on a Sabbath. Okay? Everyone would have agreed with that. If someone was in imminent danger, if someone was like hanging off a cliff, you're not going to walk by and say, Sabbath. <laughs> that would exert my, my effort a little too much. No, everyone agrees. But the argument could be made that this man with a withered hand, while he was clearly injured, he wasn't in any real danger. Jesus could have very well healed him on the next day. But Jesus decides to do it in front of everybody, and he does it on the Sabbath. Why? Why? See, I don't think the answer is all that complicated. Jesus came, as it says in, in, in chapter 11, verse 20, 29, to give rest for our souls. And that term, rest, is associated with the Sabbath throughout the Old Testament. It is no mistake that Jesus places, that, that Matthew places these stories side by side. Also, to have a withered hand, and Luke's gospel points out that it was his right hand, which in that culture would have been a pretty big deal. To have a withered hand, it would have been more than an inconvenience. One commentator argues that it would have resulted in a significant social handicap. Again, it's still something that could have been dealt with the next day. Right? He's gone this long with a withered hand. What's one more day? But if Jesus is truly the Lord of the Sabbath, and he came to give rest for our souls, then in healing this man on a day that God provided so that humanity might experience his rest, he is demonstrating that the rest of God was always intended to be a picture and a foretaste of new creation. And in God's new creation, you know what happens? The lame will run, jump, and skip their way through glory. And so, yeah, he could have waited a day, 
But Jesus was trying to tell us something, namely that in God's economy and under his rule and reign, people matter more. And when we lay aside our traditions for the sake of others, the love of Christ is put on full display. He could have done it on any other day of the week. He chooses the Sabbath. He chooses the Sabbath. Oh, make no mistake, that wasn't a coincidence, Redeemer. He wants to teach us what Sabbath actually means. He wants us to understand that it's not about a bunch of rules and and, and traditions that actually place a burden and yoke upon us that we're unable to bear. No, it's about giving us freedom. It's about giving us rest. And one of the primary ways that this man needed to experience that freedom was having that social handicap removed from him, something that he had been suffering with probably for much of his life. Now Jesus is saying, I'm making you whole, and I'm making you whole on a day that was intended to make all of creation whole. It's a foretaste of what's coming down the pike. Man, that's good news. And Jesus doesn't care that it trips up some people's views of what the Sabbath ought to be. He's like, no, 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 we can't function in what things ought to be. We need to function in what things are. And the Sabbath is a day when people are supposed to experience the rest, peace, and salvation of Almighty God. And he does that with this man with the withered hand. And he doesn't give a rip about what the Pharisees have to say about it. Oh, man, that's good news. That's such good news. But you know who doesn't think so? The Pharisees. They hated everything about this. And they went on the Sabbath, mind you, And they conspired against him as to how they might destroy him. Oh yeah, that's Sabbath keeping. But we've done this. We've also taken the good news of God's salvation and we've done this to it and we've added this to it and we've put this around it. And we have to be so careful of that. Because it is our tendency. Why? I actually think the motives are good. They lead into a very broken place, but I think the motives make sense. We are so fearful of breaking God's law that we run as far away from it as we possibly can. So that breaking God's law is all the way over there. And in order for me to break God's law, man, there's a lot of steps in between. But that's not how the gospel functions. That's not how the kingdom functions. He's not saying be so far away from the possibility of even coming into even the remote chance of breaking law. He's saying, love me, follow me, and, 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 and cast this vision of what life could be if we entrust ourselves to the kingdom of, of heaven, to the king of that kingdom of heaven. We're not supposed to live in fear. But yet, that has entrapped us in so many ways. And I never want us to be a people where we are motivated by fear. Where we're motivated by by this idea, well, what what if there is some sin that creeps into this place? Well, we need to make sure it's not even remotely possible. Guys, sin's gonna happen here. Little secret, it's happening right now here. It just happens. Do we trust God enough to deal with it? Do we trust God enough to trust that the Holy Spirit is at work in the lives of people? And do we trust God enough to believe it when he says that the kindness of God leads to repentance, not the hammer? 
That's what's happening in this text. The Pharisees want to bring a hammer. They both want repentance. I really do believe, I'm not going to sit here, like I think sometimes we're a little too hard on the Pharisees. I'm going to say it. I said it. I said it. We're a little too hard on the Pharisees sometimes. I think they genuinely want to see people follow God. I think some of them are just trying to grip their power, but I think some of them really want to see people follow God. But I think they're very ill-informed as to how that happens. And they're scared. They're scared that people are going to trip up and they're responsible. Hey, guys, I'm going to have to stand before God one day and give an account for the people that he entrusted to be under my care as a pastor. That's scary. And I can see how that fear can motivate us to do things maybe that don't fit in line with what the scriptures calls to what the kingdom calls us to. But we have to trust God. We just have to. And it's better when we do. Like it truly is. It truly is a better thing to trust what God has for us rather than the traditions that we conjure up on our own. Which brings us to the point we've been driving toward all morning and for the last five weeks. The text says this, verses 15 through 17. Jesus, aware of this, he was aware of verse 14, right, that they were conspiring against him, they wanted to destroy him. He's aware of this, so he withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all. Why do you think many followed him? What do you think? Just throw it out there. Why do you think many followed him? What did they just observe him do? Heal, yeah. They're like, oh, I want to be a part of this. And so they follow him. Many followed him, and he healed them all. Oh, he gets to work, right? And he orders them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So Jesus knew what was going on, so he left. But while the wise and understanding men wanted to see him destroyed, the little children followed him, and Jesus healed them all. But he told them to keep quiet, and the text says that all of this was meant to fulfill the words of Isaiah. And the words of Isaiah are this, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him. And he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench, until he brings justice to victory. And in his name the Gentiles will hope. So we're not, similar to what we've been doing the past few weeks, we're not going to dig at every single nook and cranny of this. We don't have time for it. We have a goal this morning. And so this quotation, it comes from the first of what are traditionally referred to as the servant songs of Isaiah. And leading up to these songs, the servant throughout Isaiah, it refers to Israel. But New Testament scholar Craig Craig Blomberg, Bloomberg, he observes that the more one progresses through the four servant songs, the more the servant starts to look like an individual. In other words, Israel wasn't getting the job done So God chose one from among them. So the servant, which was corporate Israel, as this text moves forward, it starts to look like an individual. A little secret. The New Testament believes that individual, who is it? It's Jesus. That's the answer to every single Sunday school question. It's Jesus. 
And that's really what the Jesus story is about. Israel was called to be a light to the nations, a blessing to all the families of the earth, and they just weren't. They just weren't. But they really couldn't be. See, what was needed was something they simply didn't have. And so God's plan to bless all the families of the earth was placed upon the shoulders of Jesus, whom Matthew describes as a son of Abraham and David, a true Israelite. And what does this son of Abraham do? I'll tell you what he does. He invites the little children, the weak, the broken, the social outcasts, those who have been divorced and kicked out of their churches, those who have had a child out of wedlock and were abandoned by their Christian families, those who struggled with same-sex attraction and were ostracized from their communities, those who were made to feel weak or insane because of their understanding or approach to a pandemic, or simply had questions and doubts and were made to feel as though they were being unfaithful to God those who have struggled with addiction and were just tossed to the side. He invites those little children, all of us little children, to come to him. All of us who labor and are heavy laden, he invites us to learn from him, one who is gentle and lowly, to take his yoke and his burden and in him, we will find rest. True Sabbath. Again, I'm not saying we should wink at sin and pretend like it doesn't matter. I don't believe that. Listen to what I preached last week. I do not believe we should wink at sin. But I am saying, We should receive sinners into this place, into our lives, and we should trust that the Holy Spirit of God will do his work of sanctification, of making us holy. God does not say, clean up before you come to me. He says, come to me and I will clean you up. That matters. The order of operations matters. Scott, do order of operations matter? I think so. I mean, I don't know. I'm not a math major. Every single person in this room has been or might today be a bruised reed or a smoldering wick. And you're standing here because you have experienced God's grace. You experienced Jesus, and not in some ethereal or ghost-like way, but most likely through the kindness and physical presence of a faithful brother or sister who came alongside you in your time of pain, doubt, and struggle. I bet most of our stories, if not all of our stories, has a person or a group of people attached to it who loved you in spite of who you were and what you were doing. That's good news, Redeemer Fellowship. That is good news. What I have been sharing over these last five and now six weeks is my hope for us as a church, as a community of faith here in Tom's River. I love this church. I truly love this church. 
I love who we are and what we are becoming and what we have been becoming over these last three years. God is truly at work in this place. I believe that with all of my heart. Now to give you one last imagine if statement. Imagine if Redeemer Fellowship was a place where the battered, broken, and struggling of Ocean County came to be made whole spiritually, emotionally, physically, sexually, economically, and any other Ali we can think of. Jesus came to bring peace. Salvation in Christ means that our sins are forgiven 100%. And we are welcomed into the family and little by little through the power of the Holy Spirit, we are being made whole. Did you know that peace in the Bible, that word shalom in the Old Testament, and I think in the Greek it's arenes? Is that right? You don't remember? I'll get back to you. Is that right? Come on, guys. You guys went to seminary. What's the... (laughs) Peace in the scriptures is not just about like the absence of war, but it's about a wholeness. It's about bringing, bringing life to where there was death, about bringing, like binding up what is broken, bringing peace to chaos. It's like this all-inclusive picture. It's a holistic view of peace. It's, it's, what, it's what scholars describe as flourishing, as human flourishing. It is, it is all-encompassing. That's the sort of peace that God is offering us through his son, Jesus. And we get to be the conduits of it. If we entrust ourselves to this radical idea of loving others, we get to be the conduits of it. It's the stuff that Paul Hulse is doing through Just Believe, that there are these broken people who are walking through Tom's River in Ocean County, who are struggling, and he's saying, I want to bring them peace. Not the absence of war, although for some of them it might be, but wholeness, physical wholeness, economic wholeness, relational wholeness, spiritual wholeness, sexual wholeness, all of it. That's the peace that is on offer. And it takes time. It takes a lifetime to get there. But this is the kingdom of heaven, and this is what I am praying that we would continue to become here at Redeemer Fellowship. That's the good stuff. That's the reason why all the brokenness that we experience, God looks at it and he says, blessed. Because he knows where it's going. Man, that is good, good news. I don't think I have anything more to say. But that truly is my hope for this church. It really is. That's really what I am praying that we will become. I'm praying that I would become more of that. And I know that, that what we're talking about, it's, it's out there, right? It's like we can't really, it's, it's, that's what a vision is. It's like it's something that you're striving toward that, that you're never going to fully realize, but you're not content until you do. So you keep pushing towards, you keep pushing towards it. And I know even my own life, this is like aspirational. I'm not here yet. I'm not preaching to you as someone like, you guys should be like me. (laughs) Like, 
I'm not saying that. I, trust me, like, talk to my wife and kids. Like, I, I have not arrived there. But, oh, man, that's what I want. That's what I deeply desire. And it's going to start with cultivating it within ourselves, like individually, like praying, practicing the spiritual disciplines, by loving just the people who are in our immediate sphere. And then I think it starts to get easier as you put yourself out there. I think that's what faith does as you take these little steps. God starts to give you more confidence to take another step and another step. And so a shameless plug, I would encourage you to take one of those steps by signing up for our prayer discipleship course beginning on Wednesday night. But there's opportunity for us to really embrace what God's calling us to. I really believe that. I really believe that. Like, imagine if, right? Let's allow God to challenge our imaginations so that we are not far too easily pleased, but that the thing that satisfies would be a king and a kingdom. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for your salvation, that it's so much bigger than just the forgiveness of my sins. It is that, but it's so much more. Lord, that we are being written into a story, a story of redemption, where the bruised, battered, and broken are made whole. God, help us to be a space where that happens. Help us to be a people where that happens. Help our ministries to embody that ideal our women's ministry, our men, our children, our youth, our Sunday morning teams, our community groups, that we would be a place, a people that embody those ideals where all who are weary and heavy laden can come and find rest because you're here. Father, we love you with all of our hearts. We thank you for your son, Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.